0: All right, welcome to the Avery Adventures podcast. Today on the show, I have a an Idaho native, uh, Sean Carlock from Defensive Edge. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks, Ryan. I uh, met you probably about 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, it's been every bit of that. Oh, uh, actually, probably longer than that, because you were still down in uh, Post Falls. Yes. That's when I met you. So that was like 2000-ish, probably. Yeah, pretty close to that. Uh, if you guys don't know what who Sean is, he owns Defensive Edge. Um, Sean, can you kind of, before we get into your history, can you kind of tell us what defensive edge is in a nutshell? Currently we do
1: custom long range rifle building and tactical and long range training. That's the bulk 99% of what we do here. So, I mean, just in a nutshell, we build the rifles, we train people how to use them and, uh, go at it like that.
0: So being an Idaho native, I take it you grew up, uh, hunting, fishing, riding motorbikes, doing the the North Idaho thing per se
1: totally fishing, hunting, shooting. I started shooting with my dad when I was four years old, I wasn't even strong enough to hold a gun up by myself and I'd sit in his lap and shoot, you know? So I've had a gun in my hand all all my life, you know?
0: So how, why did, did you get started into the gunsmithing for something you didn't see or just you were into guns?
1: Um, I was a SWAT cop and narcotics officer at the time. And I started a part-time business, uh, to do some training and make a little extra money. And I got into competition shooting at about the same time. And of course, not making any money as a cop, I built my, <laughs> I had to build my own stuff, you know, and cause comp guns were expensive. And I thought, well, I've got a machinist background from high school and working in a machine shop right out of high school and stuff. So, I thought, well, I can build this, I can do that. And I started building 1911s were actually the first thing that defensive edge did was 1911s shotguns for three gun and AR 15 work. And it, Kind of went from
0: there. I didn't know that. So you, you first started wasn't there was no really long range part of it. It was all in the three gun, pistol, shotgun, AR side. Absolutely.
1: I didn't build my first bolt rifle. I was probably in business for four or five years before I built my first bolt rifle. A buddy came to me and said, "Hey, I'd like to have one of these rifles. Can you build one of these?" And I looked. I went, "Well, yeah, I can do that." You know, and <laughs> it, it kind of took off from there. And and once the rifle stuff started. It didn't take very long before we started making some advances in the long-range community, and boy, we just got so busy, we had to let all the other stuff go to the wayside.
0: So that was back when you were at the center target in Post Falls? That was long before that. That's oh, when wow. I
1: still lived in Lewiston. Oh, really? Yeah, I started Defensive Edge part-time in 97.
0: Okay. And, then, and you...
1: then I retired from law enforcement in 2000, early in 2000, and went full time with Defensive Edge.
0: And then you moved up towards Coeur d'Alene.
1: Yep. We moved up here to Cord Lane in 2003.
0: When did the, the long range hunting side kind of kick in for what you guys were doing? Well, it was kind of funny because I've been long range hunting since,
1: oh, the late 80s early 90s that was always a thing for me but I didn't know anything about what a good gun was of course we didn't have anything we didn't even have laser range finders we had those old ranging reflex split image <laughs> deals you know that were good for plus or minus 50 yards at a thousand and that kind of stuff so we didn't even know what we didn't know at that point you know what scopes were you using then were you holding over or are you dialing we were dialing I, I started dialing right away I mean we did a little hold over when you're shooting four or five hundred yards but boy to to get past that we had to figure out how to dial up and we used loophole uh, mark 4 tactical scopes
0: this was in the late 80s early 90s
1: yeah this had been around 88 or 89 when i got my first good dial-up scope
0: so you're you were a little ahead of the curve then a little bit that i didn't know that either that's interesting so early 2000s you, you figured out that uh there might be a, a awakening coming i guess for the long-range hunting community and you jumped into actually building custom rifles Then I'd like to say that I could foresee all
1: that coming, but in the end, I was just lucky. <laughs> you know, that was always kind of my thing. I, I was a sniper on the SWAT team for a long time, and that background helped a lot, obviously, of course, being able to go to sniper school and, and do things basically the Marine Corps way. And uh, it kind of it changed, modified it from there to what worked for hunting the best.
0: In the time period, what what rifle were you? What caliber of rifle were you shooting in the early two thousands for long range?
1: <laughs> in my first serious long range rifle in the early nineties, in ninety two, when Idaho was completely full of elk and there was not a wolf to be seen, <laughs> I had a Remington seven hundred Sundero the first year they came out in seven rim mag, and a loophole three and a half to ten tactical with target knobs on it. And I'd have swore right then it'd never get any better than that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In the beginning, I guess.
1: In the beginning, for sure.
0: So you kind of you're kind of the guy that everybody goes to kind of pioneered the three thirty-eight edge. Can you tell us what was the what was the draw to it?
1: Well the draw to it was the first precision rifle I built for my friend that I was telling you about was a three oh eight Winchester. And of course it's Ballistically challenged as we all know. Uh, boy, I want to build something that's really a hitter. Something that'll go some big distance, has some horsepower, fold an elk in half, you know. And I knew I wanted something in 338. But I didn't know what. 338 Lapua brass at the time was really expensive. It was mm-hmm. There were few factory guns chambered in it. You know, the Seiko TRG was really the only thing available at the time. And I got to looking at the 300 Ultramag case. I mean... The minute it hit the market, uh, mm-hmm. boy, if you neck that out to 338, that's brass you can afford. It fits a regular bolt face. I can build it on a 700 and we'll, we'll build a few guns. Boy, I had no idea, had no idea what it was going to turn into.
0: No, I, I, the, how I found you was on a, basically on a 338 edge, some kind of forum or something that talked about three and I was like what the hell is a 338 edge <laughs> and then there was a picture of you holding the rifle what like what did it give what did it give over you know the seven rim mag I mean what what was okay I'm going to shoot an elk at 700 yards with a seven rim mag or I'm going to shoot a three or uh, the 338 edge at an elk at 700 yards well two things for me I mean just I mean because I've killed a trainload
1: elk at some decent distances and the big thing having those 300 grain bullets out there and 338 is just a whole different horsepower level of putting stuff down you shoot an elk with a seven rem mag you can kill him really great i mean seven rem mags a good round but you can visually and audibly tell the difference of a 300 grain 338 bullet hitting an animal it just folds them in half (laughs) And you hit them with the seven rim mag and they hump up and maybe they take a few steps and fall over and it's a good solid shot and a good clean kill. But there's no comparing the two. The biggest thing that the 338 I found let me do was put the bullet on the axe because it's drifting less in the wind. It, I actually have had more 338s that shot tiny, tiny groups than seven millimeter anything.
0: You go on those forums? That's
1: blasphemy, Sean. Well, that that could be, and, and people like what they like. There's a lot of guys that wouldn't own anything but a 284 something, you know. Right. And that's that's great. I like 284 stuff too. But when uh, hunting season rolls around, and I'm thinking about going somewhere, my hand just automatically goes to a 338, and the gun <laughs> say if it can't
0: help it, you know. I never. I thought I would feel inadequate using a six, five or seven mag. And so I started hanging around people like you and Jeff. <laughs> and then I started getting stuff in the back of my mind. we like, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe I need a little bigger bang. And that's, that's obviously for the long range stuff the stuff three or 400 yards. I don't think is as particular uh, moving on. How, how did you get into the, or who came up or how do you decide on the plus P and Terminator stuff? The plus
1: P stuff we got to talk and my dad and i who's been working with me for well forever you know Uh, We got to talking about a way to make more powerful cartridges without upping the pressure. So the big focus was how to reduce peak chamber pressure and spread it out over a longer curve so that we could put more powder in it without getting over, say, a 65,000 PSI threshold like you would have in a 338 Edge. We wanted to be able to reduce that pressure, put more powder in it, get it back up to pressure, and pick up that velocity. And we played around with several different things over the years until we got into that plus design and liked it so well that i had it patented
0: and then you've you've taken it to to the extreme you now you have a what's the low side of the plus p chamberings in terms of caliber in terms of caliber yes
1: we can plus p anything from 22 caliber up and we'd plus-peed stuff from 22 to 375, you could do it to anything. Certain cases you want to do it to, certain cases you don't. If you have a case that's already the very best load for it is 102 or 3%, I mean, you're compressing powder, you're having to use a drop tube to get powder in it. If you plus P that, that's going to be a disaster because mm-hmm. you don't have room to put more powder in it when you lower the peak chamber pressure.
0: And I also saw, uh, I just saw this thread the other day and I wanted to bring it up to you. It's not necessarily you have to AI, you know, you don't have to move the shoulder on all of them. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. You can take a standard 338 edge. Guys will call me. I get this call, I don't know, once or twice a month. Hey, I want to buy a set of dies for a 338 edge plus P. I got a set for my 338 edge, but I'm, you know, when mine's done, I want, dude, they're the same dies. You don't change anything on them. That
0: is simply all about the plus P throat. On the Plus P Throat, what what is the average? I know there's a bunch of different factors. Average velocity increase. Somewhere between
1: 100 and 150 feet a second, depending on caliber and what kind of powder you're going to use and barrel length and stuff. But 100 to 150 is pretty safe. Some things, the one thing that was a big benefit for us, and like you had a 338 Edge Plus P yes. that shot 3,000 feet a second or a little better, but you were able to use 570 in it. And that's one of the things that Plus P Throating will allow sometimes is to look at different powders that you couldn't really use as well before. Yes.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. The If you had to pick your favorite Plus P Chambering, what is it? 338 terminator i just (laughs) i I can't
1: help it we built a 375 and there's some bullets about to be released on the market we should have some pre-production samples here in a week or two to play with Mm -hmm. that may make me change my mind about that possibly but at the end of the day the 375 i can't kill anything any further away with it than i can my 338 simply because i can't read the conditions well enough you gotcha. know, they both are shooting so close to each other at the distances you're going to actually try to kill stuff that there isn't that much advantage to one or the other. And the 338, I've just got so much time with it that, pff, you know, I reach into the gun safe and I feel like Thor when he got his hammer back. You
0: know? <laughs> What's the, what, what are you looking at for a 300 grain bullet out of that speed wise?
1: Oh, out of a 338 Terminator? Yes. We're shooting the 300 grain burger bullets 3150, 3170, depending on the individual barrel.
0: And what's, and another big thing that's always brought up is everything, obviously, this is subjected to. What is the barrel life on something like that? Barrel life
1: on that, it depends on how you take care of your gun. Boy, if you get that gun hot and keep shooting it, you're going to eat a barrel up, especially if you're running 570 in it. But there's a lot of guys running around with six, 700 rounds on them that still haven't worn them out yet. Now I trashed the first barrel in mine took almost eight years, the original prototype barrel, and I had 700 and some change on it. So I tell people, boy, on the low side, it's going to be at least 600, but you may get eight or 900 rounds out of it, but it's like anything else. If you're going to race top fuel, you're going to burn some pistons and that's just kind of the nature of the beast, you know, right? It's, it's a commodity. It's a commodity. (laughs) They make more (laughs) barrels, right? (laughs)
0: I want to talk a little bit about probably the, the, the best the best gun that I've ever shot, probably my favorite gun that I've ever owned. Can you tell us a little bit about why and how and the development of the LRKM? The LRKM is a funny project because
1: at the end of November one year, after toting around a canyon rifle with a 30-inch barrel all hunting season, and it's 54 and a half inches long, and it weighs 15 pounds. And I laid it out on the bench, and I had the barreled action out of it, blowing all the pine needles out of the stock and giving it to kind of clean up before I put it away for hunting season. (laughs) I'm looking at it, and I thought, man, there's just got to be a way to build a shorter, long-range rifle that's a good, viable, accurate platform. And I started drawing some pictures, and it took me about four years of trying different things and playing around with development of different things. That the LR LRKM, if you looked at the trigger assembly, and it, it's a remote linkage trigger, and to build all those pieces and still get a good trigger pull out of it, I probably spent a year working on that. <laughs> you know? Really? Oh, yeah. It took a long time to get it all dialed in like I wanted, and I wasn't going to do something that I was like, well, it's all good except this one thing could be better. I wanted to be sure it was all squared away before mm-hmm. we ever even let anybody see it.
0: Can you... If you, don't, you guys don't, the LRKM stands for long range killing machine, and it's a bolt pup style design. Um, it's it looks like a chassis, Oh, well, I guess it is a chassis. I wouldn't that would you consider it? It's a
1: chassis in the sense that it's all made out of steel and alloy, and you put it together, but you can't just drop a barrel to action. In. It's not like uh, you know, buying an Arias or something and you mm-hmm. snap your 700 into it, you have to build the gun around it. But yes, it is a chassis, it's unique. The LRKM is in that the action floats. There are no action screws in it, and the action does not touch anything. (laughs) that's bizarre well if you look at thousand yard bench rest rifles the very best unlimited ones use barrel blocks and they clamp Mm -hmm. around the barrel and the barrel ahead of the block floats and the action floats behind the block we've accomplished the same thing in a sleek setup that's only you know 44 inches long and has a 30 inch barrel and can shoot forever
0: that that's i am not a great i I don't consider myself a great shooter but that I had one in. I had an l r k m and a three thirty eight uh plus p um or plus p edge, and um I could legitimately me and Sam did this. we went to the range and I shot a point three and then Sam shot a point three, and then my son shot a point three in screw <laughs> with it all on the same day and there's not a lot of rifles you can hand to three different people and have that outcome, sure. So it, that that thing's unreal, and you you don't want I don't want people to to miss it. How long is that rifle with a thirty inch barrel? With a thirty inch barrel, it'll fit inside of a forty four inch Pelican case. And so, what just for chits and giggles, what's the length of your Canyon rifle?
1: Length of a Canyon rifle is fifty four inches long. A thirty inch barreled LRKM is the same overall length as a twenty inch barrel AR fifteen.
0: Yeah, people need to let that sink in. So you can throw that in a backpack. Don't, you know get on a bike get on a horse tramping through the brush you're not going to have any of that stuff sticking over the top of your head
1: nothing at all
0: and did you offer those in all the chamberings terminators standard all the calibers We've got a hundred chamber reamers here, and we've built
1: them in everything. You can we've built them even in varmint rounds. We built one for a guy in a two sixty Remington, but with a shorter barrel. We shortened up the tube. We put a twenty six inch barrel on it, and if I recall correctly, the overall length was like thirty six inches. And he kept it in his combine to shoot coyotes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he needed something short and quick and shot well.
0: Right. So, it is still just a single shot, though. Correct. Yes. All right. Another question I actually saw on the Long Range Only Forum the other day or a while back is somebody kept saying you're making those on bad actions. Can you talk about your action that is in all the Terminators and on most of your guns now? We used the bad
1: actions when we originally developed the LRKM chassis. And then after a while, the bat is a great action, no doubt about it. But we wanted our own action and we wanted a few things different to make some changes from the bat design specifically for long-range hunting the bat design is very tight it's bench mm-hmm. rest action no doubt about it if you cerakote it you can't beat the gun together you know it's that tight wow. so we wanted to loosen some things up we wanted an ejection port that would hold that would kick out a four inch live round and uh, we wanted to change some stuff and make it different we wanted uh, to position, Bolt shroud safety for the LRKM. We wanted it adaptable where we could fit it in a 700 long action footprint. So we just started making the changes. We laid that BAT action on the bench and laid a modified Remington 700 action like we'd been building a lot of guns on side by side and said, okay, what are we going to keep? What are we going to make completely different?
0: Sounds fair enough. So Sean, defensive edge do make their own actions. Staying with the uh, chassis-ish, I uh, I reviewed or I am reviewing and uh, should put out the article this week on your MPH chassis. It's your Mountain Precision Hunter. Can you kind of go into why you jumped into the actual full-blown chassis market?
1: Because nobody builds a really lightweight one. (laughs) I mean, you know, if you look at most of them, the chassis alone weighs four pounds or Mm -hmm. or something like that. You know, they're going to be heavy. There's a lot of PRS shooters. There's a lot of guys that just like chassis guns. They like detachable magazines. They like all these features. But nobody really built one that was specifically tailored for hunting. Light, sleek, easy to use, and didn't have a bunch of stuff on it that they didn't need for hunting. So that's what i wanted to do i wanted to build one out of carbon fiber and 70 series alloy make it as light as we could but still brutally stout and shoot well be a viable platform we were really shooting for being able to build guns that weighed eight pounds or less scoped Mm -hmm. and everything and of course that depends on what optic you put on it but uh that's what we wanted detachable mag and and make it shoot like that and build them in long and short action and we designed it so that you can put uh, left or right-handed actions in it, and any Remington 700-footprint action, and and true 700-footprint, not one that has an integral recoil lug or anything <laughs> like that, will fit in it. They'll drop right in it.
0: So with that, are you going to sell them on their own, just a chassis?
1: Yeah, we'll sell the chassis just as a kit, and I kind of designed it that way so that we could sell it to other gunsmiths. You still have to build the gun around the chassis, kind of like the LRKM. But anybody that can, anybody that's currently building rifles right now can do it. It's nothing special in terms of how you build a rifle.
0: And obviously you'll build on that chassis and sell to customers with your action and your barrels and all that.
1: Absolutely. We've already sent three other ones out the door other than the one you shot.
0: <laughs> nice. What is the weight on this,
1: the chassis alone? Do you know? The weight on the chassis alone right now, we've got one or two that we can build on and we're getting ready to build the next run of them. We sold all the rest of them. I don't know, in the first four or five days, guys figured out we had them and what they were.
0: Right. And it's kind of a tubular design. I uh, You'll have to look on Defensive Edge or look on uh, some of the forums to see it. But um, can you talk a little bit about how you made the their, uh, mag release? I, I think that's important. The mag release, I'm not a big detachable mag guy and most of the guys
1: that have talk to me about building guns and know that because I'm like, Oh man, I just, most of them I've seen rattle too much. They hit them on something, hit the release on something, especially if it has one down on the bottom of the trigger bow, you catch it on something and puke all your magazine and ammunition (laughs) out on the ground and stuff. I've been there. So I wanted something that was a little more field proof than that. So when I designed this, We put a mag release on each side of the chassis that you have to pinch one with the index finger, the other with the thumb at the same time Mm -hmm. for the magazine to come out. When you do that, it falls right in the palm of your hand and we could run less pressure on it because you have to push them both. You lay it over on something, push one of them. The magazine doesn't fall out.
0: I'll have to admit when I first got it, I was cussing you a little bit. (laughs) I was like, son of a, and, but the more I used it and shot it, the more it became kind of a habit of how to do it. Sure. And it didn't take any more time. But that first couple times, I'm like, man, if I see it, if I got to reload, I'm like cussing you, man. You wouldn't be the first guy to cuss me for something. <laughs> but no, after like literally after I, I hunted with it, I hunted with it quite a bit. And then uh, had my wife shoot it in a few, after a couple of times using it, you kind of get used to how it pulls out. All right. Um all right. If you're going to uh, if you're going to build long range rifles, you're going to have to probably teach people how to shoot long range rifles. Can you talk a little bit about your classes and DVDs? We've been teaching long range shooting classes since about oh
1: four or five. I've three four hundred students through classes, and we do uh, a number of military classes for Tier one operators and big distance shooting. It's just something we started doing. We teach. Certain aspects of long range shooting that nobody else teaches that I know of. The big mm-hmm. one, and of course, byproduct of living here in the mountains, we teach how to read wind blowing over terrain features, and most people don't. Most people are working off of a flat range, and that's great. You got to start there, you know. Mm-hmm. But when you get up in the mountains, there's some things that are specific to mountain shooting that most people don't get exposed to. So we've had pretty good success with that. We built our DVD that we're currently selling mm-hmm. as. As a refresher to give to people in the classes. And it turned out that it sold pretty well, you know. So, yes. um, had a lot of positive response on it. Um, ironically, the number one DVD that we sell more than all the rest of them put together is our reloading DVD. And I had no idea that that would be a big thing. I built that so that I could spend less time on the phone explaining to people how to do stuff with the dies we're building for them, you know.
0: <laughs> I think that the the reloading side of it, and I read, obviously I'm online a lot, it's like there's people think there's some kind of voodoo in reloading and there's it's really not. But I think people are so worried about dumping that powder in there and they're putting their face next to the rifle and pulling the trigger <laughs> because I see the same questions come up. And you're right, reloading is a very hot topic. On your classes, do you guys have uh, levels? Or can somebody come in and is it a week long? Is it a day long? How do your classes run? We've got two basic different classes. We've got a 300 class and a
1: 400 class. The 300 class is basic. Everybody that takes their first class with us has to take that class. It's three days long. We camp out in the woods. We've got cots and pads and wall tents and a Dutch oven chef that cooks all the meals. And it's a good time. It's a, I've had met a lot of really great guys that come out to take that class. And then when they've completed that, then they'll come back. they come back sometimes and take that class again, or they'll take the 400 class. And the 400 class is more of a hunter's class. We do all the same kind of shooting, but we spend a lot more time shooting off a tall bipod with rear stick, shooting over your backpack, doing a lot more field position shooting, and then shooting in some more unique places, some really steep uphill and downhill where we can, that kind of thing. But we still take... I get every year a guy says, now you only take four people in these classes. If I bring three of my buddies and we come out, can we have our own class? And can we change a little bit of what you're teaching? Absolutely. We do custom classes all the time. Guys that come out and say, hey, we want to do this and this and this. Can we have that in three days? And for us four guys, sure, book it up. You know, it's no problem. I heard you have like an 80 inch TV screen out there. Is this true? That's not 80 inches, but it's pretty good (laughs)
0: size.
1: (laughs) We take that out to do the classroom portion of the uh, of the presentation right off the bat when we're going through minute of angle and how to use it and all that kind of stuff and show some video clips. But one of the things that we've really come to like it for as a, a training tool is when we're shooting big, big distance, two, 3,000 yards, we'll hook up our 40-power video camera to it and use it as a giant spotting scope. We get everybody back behind the TV, and then a lot of people have trouble seeing a dust cloud from an impact and realizing that the bullet didn't always hit right in the center of the dust cloud you know so we can talk about it we can point stuff out we can back it up and play the video over if we're recording it and everybody gets to see it it's not just one guy looking through a spot and scope
0: that is that probably is pretty pretty good learning tool you can point out exactly what's going on yeah i was some of the stuff that has I've
1: accidentally stumbled into have just turned out to be great, great training tools. We started using 22s at long range, uh, eight or nine years ago. And we, we took them because we got rained out one day of a class, one whole day we lost to a group of guys from Canada mm. and, and they were okay with that because we can't control the weather. But it's like, man, we got to be able to do something, you know? And I said, well, what if we get some really great 22s and do some little drills and stuff, even you can almost always see 50 yards. Right. Well, then we got to playing around with them and started stretching them out to two, 300 yards and stuff. And that is such a great way to get guys started because if they have trigger control issues, if they don't understand how to set the PA, you can't burn up a 22. Guys can shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot, right. put hundreds of rounds through them and get some quality training in before we even get on the big guns. What twenty twos are we using? We're using CZ-452 varmints, the heavy-barreled ones. Gotcha. And then we've got Leupold Mark IV tactical scopes on them, so we can dial them up. We can show them how to box test stuff. We go, hey, this is what happens when you can't your rifle, and make them shoot with a gun cannon so they can see just how much difference it makes, because that leaves an impression they don't forget, instead of just telling them, don't can't the rifle.
0: See, Sean, you're ahead of the curve again, because now the twenty twos are, long-range twenty twos are in the, the fad. Well, again, I just kind of stumbled into it. I was lucky about that. you know. <laughs> Better be lucky than good. That's right <laughs> all right there's a just go through a few questions on this questions I see all the time on forums and online is how how lightweight can you go with a thousand yard rifle and still have the forgiveness still be able to hit your target for the, for the average person, because the problem you, you'll have is you could probably go out, and I've seen you on video. I've talked to you about it before. You could go out and shoot 1,800 yards with a pretty dang light rifle. For the average person, and I don't want to turn this into that 1,400 yards out of the box bullshit, that I want to, what do you think is the lightest weight Magnum rifle you can go and shoot 1,000 yards with if you're going to go hunt elk with it later on?
1: You can build a six-pound rifle that'll shoot 1,000 yards. They're very difficult to shoot because they're light rifles. I think most guys are better served with a gun, with a rifle and scope combination that weighs eight or nine pounds. You know, if you're going to go lighter than that, then you have to be realistic about your abilities. If you're going to take a gun, if you're going to get a Kimber Mountain Ascent that weighs, what are those things weigh five pounds or something? They're just insanely yeah. light and put an optic on it that only weighs 14 ounces or something. You're just going to have to realize that unless you're a phenomenal shooter, you might be limited to five or 600 yards because they're just harder to shoot. Right. You know, you take a guy that can hold three quarters of a minute or a minute with that light gun and put him behind a Canyon rifle that weighs 15 pounds. He's going to be shooting under half a minute just because the gun doesn't hardly move around while he's trying to manipulate the trigger.
0: Right. That, this is kind of off topic, but it brings me up. you shooting offhand at what, like 2000 yards with the LRKM <laughs> <laughs> and doing pretty damn well. Well, I've, I've always
1: been decent at shooting offhand. The LRKM, the balance point of it is right squarely between your hands. So it's kind of cheating compared to other heavy guns that are real nose heavy. Right. But most people uh just didn't spend any time shooting small bore when they were kids. Offhand 22, mm-hmm. 50 foot competition kind of stuff. And uh I shot some and it helped a lot, you know. But yeah, there's a video clip on our website where I'm shooting 2256 yards. And I'm probably holding in the minute and a quarter, minute and a half neighborhood at that distance.
0: That's insane. But for the average average person, you would say eight to nine pounds and then get, get equated with that rifle. Absolutely. In
1: my mind, that's kind of the sweet spot. It's expensive to build five and a half or six pound rifles, mm-hmm. really expensive. And at the end of the day, I think most people would rather pack a pound or two and have a 1,000-yard rifle than to pay a ton of money and have a 600-yard rifle. I don't know about you, but I could lose
0: two pounds easy enough, much, you know <laughs> I mean? <so. laughs> I was just going to say that i get the treadmill for a few weeks and be fine. There you go. So, All right. Um, this is another question that actually was brought up. Every, everybody has a certain barrel, what what barrels do you prefer? Would you say barrels is one of the most important factors, factors on a accuracy of a rifle?
1: I'd say that the barrel is absolutely the most important part of the rifle. You know, all other things being kind of equal, the quality of the barrel is everything. Uh, predominantly, we use heart barrels. That's our go-to barrel. If it's, they don't build a barrel that's over 30 inches and they don't build certain calibers but if Hart makes it that's our go-to barrel now if somebody says hey i want a benchmark or hey i want a krieger or, i want there's a, a number of good barrels we're happy to use but Hart's just kind of our go-to barrel if we need one for an lr cam that's 34 inches a 34 inch <laughs> 375 barrel for a 375 terminator we get those from krieger because we like the krieger barrels and Hart doesn't make one like that gotcha
0: uh optics and we're talking mostly the rifle scope what optics do you prefer?
1: I'm a night force guy through and through. I've got a night force of some kind on every long range rifle I own. And
0: and it, you can nitpick as much as you want. What have you seen with other scopes that makes you go back to a night force? Is there anything that you've seen that's detrimental or just not consistent that you keep going back to a night force? You can't hurt them. I, you know, I mean, I've had guys... I've dropped
1: them on their head a couple of times myself. I've had, I had one customer bash the windage turret completely through the cap on an NXS, Wow, you know, and he had to send it in and have it repaired. They repaired it in a couple of days and sent it right back to him, but it was still zeroed after taking a hit like that. Wow. You know, cause we shot it before we sent it back and boy, it was, you know, maybe quarter minute off on zero I mean it's hold to zero you know and then they went and repaired it and we're good to go but the the thing is is there's more expensive scopes out there available and I've Mm -hmm. tried most of them at least once but I just don't see where they offer anything and I think a lot of guys get hung up on clarity and light transmission oh I like my brand blah 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 because it's just so much sharper and clearer I don't care about sharp and clear i care about light transmission early in the morning and late in the evening and i care about being able to dial the knobs up and down and have them repeat every time and not everybody does that
0: i totally agree with that what probably the most (laughs) debated topic on any (laughs) internet forum is that optics question or this question what bullet do you use predominantly for long-range hunting I use burger bullets of some
1: sort for ninety oh, percent of the long range shooting I do, whether it's hunting or shooting or anything else. I've just had really good luck with them uh A lot of guys are like, "Well, I don't like match bullets. these expand too quick, these don't expand well enough. So far, I haven't seen the magic bullet. you know mm-hmm. if it expands well at low velocity and big distance, it's gonna blow up close. And if it uh, doesn't blow up close, it tends to not expand very well at long range and low velocity. So I tend to go with big bullets, like a 300 grain, 338 bullet, or bigger. And if you shoot something up close and the bullet comes apart, you still got 300 grains of bullet. You know, it can be right. kind of messy. <laughs> yes. But. Uh, I that's just where I go guys well I was shooting my 257 whatever with a 100 grain ballistic tip in it and it hit the just exploded on the sc- well why are you shooting a 100 grain ballistic tip at something to begin with you know
0: yeah I think that's there's two different schools of thought there you know people think that you know premium hunting bullets I guess you know like the bonded bullets going really fast are great but past the 400 yard mark i think a lot of extra uh, variables start to happen and i think you need a bullet that's going to come apart And i don't think people kind of always grasp that because they're not shooting those distances i'm, I'm guessing there but
1: well, i agree with you 100 percent. i think the big issue for me is is i want to be able to Put the bullet on the X. I want to control exactly where the bullet goes because I have specific places I want. I'm a high shoulder shooter. Mm -hmm. I like to punch a hole right through the scapula and turn the bullet and a bunch of bone chips into a claymore on the inside of them. And the results of that are impressive. Right. And that's one of the issues I've seen with the 6.5 craze for long range hunting. I am not an anti-6.5 guy. I've got four or five of them myself and you can kill a deer a long ways away with a six, 540 grain bullet. But you start talking about elk, there's guys out, Oh, this is a thousand yard elk rifle, my six, five, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the first thing that happens, and I've seen it a couple of times happen. If you can guarantee a good hit in the crease, Yeah, it's dead as a doornail. It'll work great. You can kill an elk at 1,000 yards with one. You screw up the windage four inches, which is just dirt easy to do, Mm -hmm. and hit them right in the knuckle of the shoulder, they have two lungs and three legs, and you'll never see them again.
0: What do you say to the people that constantly say those are target bullets and have no business shooting animals with them? I say I haven't shot
1: enough animals with them. (laughs) We started out, when I first started with the 338 edge back in 2001 the only thing really available to us at all in 300 grain was a sierra match king and i have killed a train load of stuff with sierra match kings and they say right on them do not use for hunting match bullet only you know and part of the reason some manufacturers have that on there is because if it is intended as a hunting bullet, they can't apply for military contracts with it. Gotcha. So there's a little of that going on. But uh, at the end of the day, as long as I know I can put it on the X and it's going to penetrate distance X when it goes into the body, I really don't care
0: what it does. Fair enough. enough. What are the three most common mistakes you see in long-range hunting and shooting, like online? What, what what ticks you off when you see it?
1: Guys that good at a long-range rifle all squared away, they zeroed it in at 100 yards, they put all the stuff in their ballistic app or their rangefinder, and they go hunting. They've never shot it past a hundred yards. They don't have any idea what's going to happen. They don't know what their abilities are at a hundred yards or their ability to read the conditions in terms of wind and stuff. But, hey, we're good to go. Let's just go fling some lead down range at animals. I'm not good with that. It just makes me crazy.
0: Yeah, I would agree. What? This is kind of a, I guess, a loaded question. I've owned four of your rifles now. They've all been super accurate. Why are your rifles so accurate? Uh, That's a good question. (laughs) (laughs) So what makes you different than, let's say uh, a Christians arms or, you know, some other like production rifles out there or like, uh, I can't think of any production rifles out there, but Christians arms would be probably the closest one. I'd say it's production. Sure. I would say that that is the
1: difference between a custom and a production. Uh, first and foremost we only use the stuff that we know is going to work mm-hmm. all the time and we test fire every gun before it goes out the door. I mean, to the, to the length of developing a load and having a test target, a proof target with each gun. And I've had a few bad barrels, even from heart, you know, but I mean, boy, you're talking about a few out of thousands and, uh, Of course, we catch that before they go out the door and we rebarrel them or Hart makes it right or whatever we need to do. But every gun that goes out the door is going to be shooting under half a minute or else it isn't going to go out the door. And to be honest with you, we haven't built one that shot as bad as half a minute that that we were going to sell. If the barrel, if there's something wrong with the barrel, it's just horrible and you rebarrel it or Mm -hmm. they just shoot little bug holes. And that's one of the reasons we use them is we just had such good luck getting them to shoot.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, two, I mean, I don't really, I've never built a rifle in my life, obviously, but I think it's just two of you guys are the only two touching the rifle. You've been around thousands of rifles you know, it's no secret sauce. You're just putting the right things in the right places.
1: No, I'd love to tell you that hey, we got this super secret recipe that we do, and and nobody else can do it. And if you want something to shoot like that, you got to come to us. But that's not the case. I think you just have to pay good attention to detail, and you have to use good components, and it's really not any more difficult than that.
0: Yeah, I'd like to say that's in all custom rifles, but I'm in I'm in a business where I see and shoot a lot of custom rifles, and I've had a whole lot of issues with other custom rifles, and the four you have built for me there was no issue out the gate I guess the thing is is when I go and shoot your rifle I already know in the back of my mind they're going to shoot straight when I uh, when I have shot other rifles it's I have to work a load up and I have to keep tinkering at the load it seems like with your rifles and I'm not blowing smoke up your butt because I'm sitting here podcast with you I load what I want almost I go shoot it and it's a half minute or better and that's not normal to me Right. And and some of that just, you know, um,
1: I, I don't know. I think it's back to the use and the good components. I, I think there's a good combination of everything. I've seen guns built by good, reputable guys, guys I know that are friends of mine, even mm-hmm. that. You get a good barrel, a good action, a good this, a good that, and sometimes you can come up with really great components, but in a bad combination, mm-hmm. and they're finicky, and they just don't work real well, and you got to clean, I, I don't like cleaning guns real well, <laughs> and guys, guys, oh, you know, this thing shoots great, but I got to clean it every 15 to 20 rounds. If I had a gun with a barrel on it that you had to clean every 15 or 20 rounds to keep it shooting good, I'd take it off there and use it as tomato steak, you know? I mean, that, that's useless to me. So I think after years of putting them together and going, okay, this combination just works good together. Right. And sometimes you stumble into a great combination. Sometimes you got to work at it. But once you find a, a recipe like that, well, I try to stick with it pretty pretty tight as much as we can. Anyway.
0: Have you had a rifle or a caliber that is finicky? Uh, not too much. Uh, the finicky part
1: of guns seems to have a lot more to do with bullets. Gotcha. You know, the burger bullets in my opinion, and I use them, I like them a lot. uh, They're finicky. They're really sensitive to overall length. um, And that's how we tune our loads by adjusting overall length. You can take a Sierra match King bullet and about throw it across the shop at the case. And it's going to shoot good. (laughs) You know, they, you just don't have too much trouble making those shoot, but they don't expand as good. They don't have as good a BC and, and,
0: and a few things like that, you know, there's still a good bullet, but uh, yeah, you know. Well, on the cleaning, what is your philosophy on cleaning rifles? Oh, I don't. And I, <laughs> this, this, this causes me a,
1: a lot of debate with people and it's okay. People can do what they want, but I've had rifles, a number of them, not just one. I've had a number of rifles that we had a seven short mag shop rifle. And we rented it out in all kinds of classes and stuff. And the barrel finally gave up at 2,500 rounds Hmm. of 180 grain burgers through it. Wow. 2,500 rounds and never cleaned that gun one time from the day we built it to the time we retired it. You're
0: kidding me. Nope. And it just kept firing that same about half inch. Oh, easily under half inch.
1: We rented that thing out to probably a hundred people. And, wow. uh, I mean, that gun sold more guns for me than you can imagine. Cause people just shoot, oh man, this thing's great. It's a 14 pound seven short mag. It has no recoil. It shoots like a million bucks and, and we never did anything except, you know, blow the dirt out of it, you know <laughs> wipe the bolt <laughs> off once in a while, make sure it was in good running order, but never had a patch down. It never had any solvent down it. That's incredible. So yeah. a lot of guys are fanatical and I won't say clean freaks, but I was brought up, Hey, you shoot your guns, you go to the range. When you get home, you clean them. That's just what you do. Mm -hmm. But if there's something to be accomplished by that, great. You know, if they're starting to copper foul or accuracy starting to open up, yeah, I'd clean it. No problem. But if it's still shooting good, what do you accomplish by cleaning it? If you clean it, you have to go foul it so that it's all ready to have a good solid field shot in it Mm -hmm. when you're ready to go. So you've put it right back where it was before you cleaned it and accomplished nothing.
0: This, uh, talking to you, this brings up more and more questions. So I got it, I got it a couple more and we're done, but I, I see this all the time. What's your thoughts on cold bore? Is it cold bore or cold bore shooter? Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't have problem
1: with cold bore shots being out of the group. No. I've seen cold bore shots in certain barrels. Run a little different velocity, but I I don't see them out of the group too often. I think the cold bore shot for most people is an issue of clean barrel, dirty barrel. Guys that go out and clean them and don't foul the bore before they put the gun away Mm -hmm. end up with a clean bore and a shot out of the group. Now that it's fouled and we shoot a group, and it isn't so much of a cold bore issue as it is a clean barrel, dirty barrel issue. Now, some guns... I've seen, we'll just, they'll, they'll shoot that first shot out of the group, but that's mostly, I've never seen that in a custom barrel. Mm -hmm. That's always been in a factory gun of some kind. Gotcha.
0: What, what's your thoughts on because I hear this all the time, and I don't, I don't really know what to think about it. Well, my gun shoots at a hundred yards, but it falls asleep at three and four hundred and won't group. But then it groups at eight hundred. <laughs> what, what, what's your thought process on that?
1: Well, bullets don't spread apart and then magically come back together. That just doesn't happen. Um, a lot of people get bit by not understanding how to adjust the PA on their scope correctly, and you see it a lot of times with scopes that do not have a pa adjustment on them most of them are factory set for 200 yards well this gun won't group worth a damn at 100 yards but at 200 yards the bullet's going to sleep and it's doing all this other tappy crap (laughs) and and then it just shoots really good you know shoots better at 300 yards than it does at 100 well that that's not true again bullets don't spread out and then magically come back together. Like they have a homing device in them. It doesn't work like that. (laughs) Most people just don't either don't have a PA adjustment or don't understand how to adjust the PA. And then when they get out there and the PA is off, it opens up their group. So when they get out the further away, you get the less sensitive that adjustment is the Mm -hmm. toughest place to set your PA is like at 50 to a hundred yards.
0: That does make a lot of sense. Um, another question you are a full-blown gunsmith people can send you their pieces and you go put them together
1: oh absolutely we'll do just barreled action work we'll just put our our muzzle brakes on anyway Um, we're a little busy to put on everybody's muzzle brakes but we put our any parts we sell we'll put on if you've got a 700 action laying around you say hey i just i want a new varmint barrel in my 700 action can you square it through it and put a, a 243 barrel on it you bet no problem
0: well, Sean, I'll uh, quit wasting your time. I appreciate you coming on. You can find all this stuff at defensiveedge.net. Is there any place else people can contact you? Or you want them to contact you? Oh, they're welcome to contact us at the shop or send us an email. Either one, no problem. And that's defensive. It's gunsmith at defensiveedge.net. Correct. All right. Thanks for coming on, Sean. Not a problem, buddy.